Uh, before I invite up our preacher this morning, Brent England, um, some of you may not know who Brent England is. Um, I just met him today, this morning myself. Um, however, I didn't just find him on the streets roaming around somewhere. He is, uh, he is a trusted friend of a trusted friend of ours, uh, Paul Hemphill from the Reformed Presbyterian Church on Maple. Uh, has um, commended Brent England, and, um, and, and so I'd like to commend him to you. Uh, Mr. Brent England, would you come up and bring the word to us this morning? Good morning, church. Uh, I'm also a teaching elder in the PCA, so no heresy coming from the pulpit. No worries, uh, God willing, right? Um, I've actually, <clears throat> uh, metanoia was mentioned this morning in Tim McCracken. I've actually been in prison for about the last 12 years, and I'm not kidding. Um, I've been a prison chaplain uh, for, since 2011, and uh, metanoia's ministry, when you hear about them from Tim, if you're inclined or in, encouraged, spurred to give. Don't be afraid uh, to do so. Uh, Tim does good work. Tim is enthusiastic about his ministry. If you know Tim, I uh, actually interned at his congregation when I was in seminary back in summer of 03, summer of 04, sorry. So uh, that's, you know, and I met Paul Hemphill. I met him when he was maybe early teens, preteens. Um, so uh, go back a long way with that congregation, but Tim's ministry is blessed. Tim does good work, so uh, be prayerful for him, for prison ministry, and I want to think a little bit about prison ministry. Help us to think in context of, excuse me, uh, I tend to move. Uh, I'm feeling a little constrained here by this, so if I move around, don't be uh, surprised, but um, we tend to think as humans in line with where we are, whether physically, theologically, emotionally, spiritually, and prison is not any different. It's tricky, in, 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 in prison, you have inmates, they're different, but they're the same, right? You think it's a weird place, it's an odd place, and it's strange to go in there to be behind the walls. Uh, you get a different perspective as someone who's there on a daily basis. Thankfully, after my eight-hour shift, after my eight-hour sentence each day, I get to come out and go home, return to the family, unlike the inmates. But they have a way of thinking, a mindset that can be uh, negative, to say the least, because they're around other negative people. So sometimes they tend to make uh, excuses about why things are the way they are, about why maybe they're not faithful in scriptures they should be, why maybe they're not faithful in prayer. Or you have a guy come into the chapel for worship one day, and he seems to really be in it. He's singing, he's engaging, he's talking to you, he receives your counseling, and then five minutes after he leaves the chapel, he gets in a fight and he gets locked up in, 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 in the secure housing unit because he had to defend his honor. He had to you know, make sure that he wasn't disrespected. And so 
Uh, I often think of the passage where Jesus says uh, that I write it down. Um, Pick up your cross and follow me. Unless you're in prison. Then you get a pass. You know, and it's easy to get in that mindset, that way of thinking, well, I'm in prison, so God's going to give me a little extra grace. God's going to give me a little extra freedom because, you know, I can't let this happen or I can't let that happen. Jesus, God didn't say be holy as I am holy unless you're in prison. There are no qualifications. There is the standard of Christ, the standard of holiness, the standard of perfection. And I think, too, as Reformed believers, we have to be mindful because basically what I say about the, the inmates is they'll give me excuses as to why they did the wrong thing. And it's this perpetual pattern that they've built up over their lives. They don't know how to get out of it because it's all they've lived. It's all they've ever known. So even as a new Christian, the devil keeps bringing them back and the devil keeps messing them up. And the devil keeps causing them to trip up. They, they get caught up in their own sin. Their habits that have been lifelong, they got to break that pattern and it's very difficult for them to do so. And I think sometimes as Reformed believers, we get caught up into some similar habits and into some similar patterns where we might even defend it as a good thing. You know, one of the things I've really been thinking of, uh, and my wife has really been encouraging me in this in the last couple of years, is this mindset of depravity. You know, the tea of tulip. The other day, I took a picture of it, and I obviously can't share it with you, but I was on Facebook. And uh, there was a meme that someone posted, and it showed a box of donuts. Well, presumably it's a box of donuts. It's just a box. I didn't see any donuts. So it said, you know how some of those boxes of donuts say on the outside, you deserve a donut. You know, long, hard day, whatever, early morning, you work hard, you deserve a donut. Well, someone scratched out a donut and said wrath. And it was Calvinist men's breakfast. You deserve wrath. And someone said after that, it says, and by grace, you get a donut. Okay, fine. That's funny. It's a, it's a little bit of a joke. But all joking aside, I think as, as, as Reformed believers, as Christians, we need to be careful not to get caught up in that mindset of depravity and wrath. You know, a lot of times in the prison, you'll ask someone, how you doing? And I've heard this from believers and non-believers. But especially from believers... And I've challenged them to think a little bit about it. And I hear this in the local church. How are you doing today? Well, I'm better than I deserve. Okay, so I think about that. And I didn't think anything of it for a while. Then my wife challenged me to think about it. And so I started questioning it a little bit over the years. And I guess from the perspective of I'm better than I deserve, you know, God is good to me. God is gracious. And I never earned or deserved any of that grace. Okay, fine, I get it. But if you're a Christian... What do you deserve? You deserve the love of God. You deserve the kindness and the goodness and the fellowship of God in Christ. God is for you. God loves you. God has laid claim on you, taken you to be his own. You no longer deserve wrath or judgment because Christ has taken that penalty upon himself for you. So I want to encourage you to be mindful of that way of thinking where it's all about depravity, where it's all about wrath. There's almost this sinful pride that we take in talking about our depravity and our deserving of wrath. In Christ, who are you? You are a child of God. You are redeemed. You are loved. 
And I want that to be an encouragement for you. We just, you know, sang in that song. What did, uh, it was Philip Bliss who did the tune. I can't remember who did the song. It is well with my soul. Um, and, and, and it's an interesting history behind this song. It is well with my soul. Uh, the writer lost his family, most of his family in a shipwreck. Um, wife and most of his children, I think maybe one children's child survived, maybe his wife survived and he lost his kids, I can't remember. But he wrote this in light of that tragedy. And it says, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. You bear the wrath of God no more, brothers and sisters. Otherwise, why did Jesus die? He died for you. He died to take that wrath and judgment upon himself so you could be forgiven. So you could be loved. So you could be redeemed. But we're going to get into some of the scriptures that bear this up. But I want us to be encouraged in thinking of that um, as we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And I'm going to read uh, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. I'll read... All of them, but we're going to focus on verse 4. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So we think about our attitudes, our mindset, what carries us through each day, what goes through our minds from morning through evening. And you have the attitudes of the Beatitudes. The B attitudes. And I was in college, I was a new believer. Someone mentioned the B attitudes, and I thought, B attitudes? That's kind of weird. What is that? And I thought, they said, no, it's B attitudes. It's one word, not B attitudes. But they are attitudes of how we should be. Right? Christ is giving us a framework in which to live. But it's not a framework that is natural to sinners. Now, of course, we're. Sinners redeemed by grace. We are children of God. We begin to think differently. We begin to live differently. We begin to speak differently. As Christians, we're called to have an entirely different set of attitudes and values than the world around us. We are different people, and in the Beatitudes, Jesus spells out the attitudes that should shape who we are as Christians. Now, we want to be careful. We don't want to look at the Sermon on the Mount as some sort of legalistic measuring stick you know sometimes to get things done i do post-it notes and i've got like sticky sometimes posted all over my desk to make sure i get this thing done or that thing done or I, I you know save emails to remind me of things to get things done 
uh, sometimes we might look at the Beatitudes and, and, and check them off. You know, well, okay, I got this today. I was poor enough today. I was meek enough today. I was mournful enough today. So if you check off all these things, then you're honoring God. Then you're doing what pleases God. But what we want to look at instead is not as a checklist to get into God's kingdom. Jesus isn't giving us a checklist here to get into the kingdom of God. You're blessed if you do all these things, and if you don't do them, you're going to go to hell. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he's speaking to those who are already in the kingdom. When you're in the kingdom, this is how you're going to live. This is the way that you will be. This is how you should live based on what Christ has already accomplished for you. And so in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus is painting a picture of the type of person we should imitate, the type of person we should be like, a hero. Now we've heard about heroes, you know, we think of heroes, people who run into burning buildings or they run towards trouble. When trouble comes, they don't run away, but they run to help. Uh, Sometimes it might be my heroes were pretty vain growing up. I was not raised a Christian, so my heroes were all sports figures. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so you think of the big popular teams in the 80s, all the sports figures. Back Those are the guys I wanted to emulate. Thankfully, as I grew up, I realized, boy, these aren't the people you want to emulate. Because you realize your heroes weren't all that heroic. And that's the things they get into later in life. You know, Lawrence Taylor, famous linebacker in the NFL back in the 80s, great football player, uh, as an individual, things he got into, things he did, not so much to be emulated. So heroes, what is the type of person you want to be like? Do you have a hero? Maybe your parents you consider your hero. Maybe someone who is a teacher, someone who is involved in your life in some way. You look at them, you want to emulate them, you want to be like them. As a kid growing up, I wanted to be wealthy and well-known. I wanted to be an athlete who was adored by the kids, by the young people. Actually, my signature that I write now, I practiced that in fourth grade. I had it set in fourth grade because in fourth grade, I thought this is how I'm going to sign all the basketballs the kids bring to me whenever they want my signature. That was my idea of success. That was my idea of what it was to be here to be a sports guy. And of course, it was, I think Charles Barkley said years ago, I'm not here to be a role model, I'm here to play basketball. There's a bit of truth to that. You don't want to emulate someone just because they have athletic prowess or skills. What's that going to do when they're in the grave? When you're in the grave? It's all for nothing. Naked I come into the world, naked I leave, Job says. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we find our uh, desires, we find ourselves emulating or imitating those who have gone before us. Uh, Sometimes we want to train up our kids. Maybe we've had failed attempts at success. We thought we could do something and then we didn't achieve it. So what do we do? We transfer that onto our kids. We want to make our kid to grow up to be like the next Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods has his own character issues and flaws. But boy, his dad trained him up to be a great golfer and he made millions. But what was that millions worth? What were those millions worth? What did all that fame get him? For eternity? Not a lot, if anything. So the question to ask in light of the Beatitudes is, what are we trying to achieve? 
What are we trying to gain? What are we training up our kids to understand as important? Sports are great. Sports are fine. I'm a huge college football fan. I'm in my element this time of year. Really big games coming up, games that were played, you know, really fun games, enjoyable. But what kinds of people are you training our children to become? What are we teaching our kids to value as important? Whether you have your own children and you interact with other kids or people you interact with in general, what are you telling them is important in life? So in, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is changing our definition of the type of hero we should emulate, the type of hero we should imitate. He challenges the worldly dreams and desires that threaten to crowd out the purpose in life for which God made us. God made us for what purpose? To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man. In Christ, we are different people, and so we should long for things. What do the Beatitudes say? These are not things that are popular in the world around us. Meekness, humility, mourning, being poor, being hungry. Nobody thinks of those things when they think of popularity and wealth and status and privilege in life. This is the opposite. This is like living in the slums of spirituality. But Jesus is saying, no, these are the good things. These are the blessed things. These are the things that we ought to aim for as believers. When we think of, you know, how success is measured, these aren't the things that come to mind. At least from the world's perspective. Again, these are characteristics. These are habits that should describe who we are on a more regular basis, the type of person we should be on a day-to-day basis. Are you known as being someone who imitates Christ? Are you known as being someone who has the characteristics of a Christian? Jesus didn't, of course, just say this. He lived these attitudes. He has shown us what a faithful Christian should look like. And because of what Christ has done, more than just being a role model or a hero whom we could never actually be like, Jesus lived the life, and in him we find somebody whose life and whose perfection is already credited to our account. So that in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we can live like Jesus. We can imitate Jesus. Paul says, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. I could never be like Lawrence Taylor. First of all, I'm the wrong skin color. I'm not tall enough. I don't have enough muscle. I don't have enough weight. But I can be like Jesus. We all can be like Christ. So we don't want to read the Beatitudes and, and beat ourselves up. Sometimes we get into the scripture. Oh, I'm never good enough. How could God love me? I'm a terrible person. We live in our sin. We live in our depravity. We live you know, under fear of the wrath of God, even though we're in Christ. That's not the way that we should live as Christians. We should live in the light of victory. You know, I talk about football, right? The victory formation. You know what the victory formation is if you're a football fan? It's when the game is won and you've got nothing else to do to, 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 for the game. Um, 
There was a game last week. All they had to do was do the victory formation. They would have won the game. They messed up. They gave the ball away. They lost the game. Victory formation is when the game is done, you basically take a knee and you win. In Christ, we have the victory. Now, we can't just give up. We've got to still play the game. But Christ has won for us. The Spirit continues to sanctify us. The continue, Spirit continues to work in us, to mold us, to shape us, to form us more into the image of Christ. So in Matthew 5, verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. John Stott simply says, and I, I stole my sermon title from John Stott, Happy are the unhappy. Sort of a contradiction of terms, but the point is the paradox implied by the verse. Uh, Jim Boyce says that, said the blessedness refers to spiritual happiness. Spiritual happiness. Now what does the Declaration of Independence say in the United States? We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness. Happiness is, it seems, uh, so central and life that it hasn't even begun, it doesn't describe who we are as a nation, like happiness is a nice thing to get. It's almost who we identify ourselves as deserving of. We're entitled to happiness. We deserve happiness. And if we don't have it, somebody is at fault. Somebody needs to be in trouble. Somebody needs to pay the price because I'm not happy, because you're infringing upon my rights in some fashion. You're getting in the way of my happiness. Happiness is not a means to an end, but has become an end in itself, a right of existence by the fact in virtue of your breathing, you deserve happiness. Now again, how do we measure happiness? Some people measure it by, uh, uh, do I have a good career? Do I have a good marriage? Do I have kids? Do I not have kids? If I have kids, are they obedient and, and, and respectful? Do they do what they're supposed to do? Do I have enough money? Sex, drugs, rock and roll, that's where some find their happiness. But it's all meaningless. Blaise Cascal referred once to the God-sized hole in our hearts. What he meant by that was there is a hole in our existence that is so big and so vast and so deep that it can only be filled by God. It's like a black hole if you're filling it with anything other than God. You throw money in there, you throw uh, a career in there, you throw relationships in there, you throw anything in there, nothing's going to fill that hole of happiness because you don't have God. The purpose for which we are made, the purpose for which we are created, the one for whom we are created to worship. So for Christians, a consideration we should have when raising the question of finding happiness is whether our pursuits are aimed at honoring God or honoring self. Now, it's even nice to honor others, to do good for others, but that's not why we live ultimately. We live ultimately for God and honoring Him. Too many times our pursuits are about what give us ease in life, what give us comfort, what make us feel good or make us feel better. A society, we, we live as a society geared towards amusements and entertainment. I think probably the two most lucrative occupations in our culture are sports and Hollywood. I'm not 100% certain of that. I haven't done a survey, but I'm guessing that's where the money is. Athletes or people involved in athletics. Hollywood, millions. 
The purpose of entertainment is to take our minds off of things that might make us uncomfortable or might even cause us to consider death and eternity. Bobby McFerrin, he's actually a believer, didn't know that until a few years back, but Bobby McFerrin, remember his famous song back in the 80s, maybe his early 90s, Don't Worry, Be Happy? I want to start whistling that now just because it's such a catchy tune. Don't worry, be happy. He says everything's going to work out okay. Well, in Christ it will. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean we're not going to have difficulties and problems. It doesn't mean we can just put on blinders and pretend everything's good and everything's not. But that's the sense that can be taken from what he says. Now, uh, if that's all there is to life, you know, I was a hospice chaplain for a year back in the day, and sometimes at funerals you would hear funerals of unbelievers. You know, they would say, well, at least he or she lived a happy life. Well, that's great, but there's no happiness in hell. What happens when life ends? Are you ready for eternity? Are you ready for now to meet God? Because we don't know when our end is up. We don't know when the gig is up, when our time is done. How are you living now? What are you living for? What purpose? Are you living for friends? Are you living for your parents? Are you living for your spouse? Are you living for your kids? Are you living for God? And Jesus says, not blessed are the happy, but he says, blessed are those who mourn. Now again, I know we're Calvinist thinkers in here, so we're going to think, oh, I'm going to walk around like Eeyore with a sad look on my face all the time, and God's going to bless me because I'm sad all the time. That's not what Jesus is talking about. To be mournful. We're going to think of a couple of ways on what it means to be mournful. And you might think of the sadness of loss or at a funeral. You know, it's sad at a funeral. You mourn the loss of someone's life at a funeral. But in Ecclesiastes, the preacher writes, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. He says it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. And you're like, what? That's nuts. That goes against everything that we believe, Christians or non-Christians. Who wants to go to a funeral? But the idea is that at a funeral, in the house of mourning, we're more sober-minded and thoughtful about the lives that we live. We think about our effect on others in the present day, in the moment. It causes us to think about our eternity. And that is far more important than the day of feasting, where all you're thinking about is the moment. At a party, you're thinking about the moment. At a funeral, you're thinking bigger picture, right? So again, uh, to be mournful, you know, might paint a picture of a sad person. I thought of Eeyore, uh, one of my professors. Uh, he, he talked about... Uh, and the silver chair, C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, I don't know if you're familiar with that, the Marsh Wiggles, uh, they were always expecting the worst from life. Their motto was, every silver lining has a cloud. Everything is sad. Everything is tired. Eeyore's favorite food was thistles. Who wants to eat thistles all the time? He just mope around, walking around all the time. This is what people think when they look at the Beatitudes. They think, blessed are those who mourn. People who walk around sad, blessed are the meek. What do people think about meekness? Oh, it's someone who's weak. It's someone who gets stepped on. It's someone who gets rolled over. It's someone who is a perpetual doormat. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be a doormat. Meekness has nothing to do with that. Jesus is not, is not talking in mourning about doom and gloom sadness. He's not even talking about the loss or bereavement associated with death. He's talking about a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality, spiritual mourning. 
Now he says, blessed are those who are hungry. Not because they're hungry, but because they're thirsting for righteousness. It's a spiritual reality. The same thing, blessed are the poor. You're not particularly blessed if you don't have money. But if you're poor in spirit, that's something else entirely. So it's a similar idea. It's a spiritual reality. Spiritual mourning. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 6 briefly. Actually, I'm gonna, you can turn there if you want, I think. I have it pulled up here on my phone. This is after Isaiah meets the Lord. And it says, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah was given an image of being in the presence of God, and he was mournful, he was fearful, he was frightened. At one point, Peter recognized something of who Jesus was, and he says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It's like, no, you dope. You don't want to run away from Jesus or send him away from you. Draw near to him. This is your Savior. This is your friend. This is the one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you. Cling to him. Draw to him. Never let him go. It's not a happy thing to be in rebellion against the holy God and creator of our universe, and that is the cause for mourning. Sadness that humanity has rebelled against its creator. You know, what's interesting is mourning doesn't go away when you become a Christian. Sometimes it can intensify. You know, there are certain false teachings I'm thinking of the Word of Faith movement or the Prosperity Gospel movement that teach you that, you know, and the standard they have, standards are interesting, but it's very convenient. They say, if God loves you, God's going to make you wealthy. God loves you and God wants you to be rich. So if you send me money, God's going to give you money. What? Where is that coming from? That's nowhere in the scriptures. Jesus said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but he's got no place to lay his head. Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be poor or we're going to be poor, but there's certainly no promise that if Jesus loves us, we're going to be wealthy. This life is a precursor of the life to come. We're talking about the wealth that is to come, the joy that is to come, the glory that is to come. That's what we're living for. We're living in the present for the promise of a glorious future where we're keeping in mind and balance the already and the not yet. A paradox of the Christian life is that the more that we grow in holiness, the more that we grow to be like Jesus, we mourn more because of sin. Because we understand more what sin costs. It costs our Savior his life. Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died because of our sins. He bore it upon himself for us. Again, nailed to the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief, godly grief, think about that. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief brings life because it teaches you and helps you to be more 
like Christ. So you don't just give up mourning when you're a Christian. It can be, it is a healthy, can be a healthy part of your life. You know, sometimes people think that you're forgiven and then you move on. Uh, and I'll ask for hands. I don't mind asking for hands for this. Don't raise them if you don't want to. But anyone familiar with the sinner's prayer? So I got to see one or two. So the sinner's prayer is this idea that, uh, and you'll see it on some of these word of faith or, or prosperity gospel, these, these television preachers, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll bring the camera in close and they'll play the music and they'll, they'll get you emotionally wound up. And they'll say, if you just say these words, and then they'll pray this prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner, forgive me my sins, I need Jesus. Then they'll say, congratulations, you're a Christian. Now give me money. Why don't they say that directly? But the idea there is that it becomes a works-based salvation. Because I prayed a prayer, I get to be a Christian. Because of what I did, now I'm in the kingdom of God. And for many, it doesn't become a life of discipleship, it's just about conversion. So someone who's nine, he said, well, I prayed a prayer when I was nine, therefore I'm good to go. It's like all this talk about the COVID vaccine. Well, we got a gospel vaccine. I got my sinner's prayer. I got my gospel shot when I was nine. Now I'm good to go for life. So you didn't show any fruits of repentance or following Christ in your life. Now when you're at the end, you think, oh, I prayed a prayer once, so I'm good to go. That's not how it works. Every day we're called to die to sin and live to righteousness. We are rightly sad. We are mournful that our lives don't conform to the perfect holiness of God. We're sad because we realize that our sin cost Christ his life. Our sins were piled up into Jesus on the cross. It gives us cause to weep, to mourn our sins and the rebellious heart attitude from which these sins arise. There was a reason Jesus had to die. But the fact is, it's done. He did it. And now you're in Christ. Now you're a child of God. Now live like it. Be grateful to God for it and praise God for the Holy Spirit who indwells you and gives you the power and the strength and the grace to live that life. Another understanding of the reality of mourning over sin is that we mourn not only for our sin, but for the sins of the world around us. We live in a wicked and evil place, and sometimes we're reminded of that very starkly. I think I read one of the statistics comparing what Hamas did to Israel was like 10 or 15 9-11s for Israel. The proportionality, the percentage of people lost in Israel to the percentage, compared to the percentage of the entire population. We live in a crappy world sometimes. But God is gracious. God is faithful. God is patient. Now, a lot of times people in the world, they gloss over sin. They try to make it into something that isn't a big deal. You know, we, we call it choice. We call it freedom, freedom of choice, free expression. I can select my gender. It is whatever I feel like I want it to be. We get selective in our morality. Some things are good, some things are bad. It depends on the year. Christians have to avoid the extremes of being so accepting that everyone's right or so critical that everyone deserves hell. 
It's very easy to sit in judgment on people we disagree with. It's very easy to sit in judgment, and I call it the Jerry Springer syndrome. I think Jerry Springer's been off the air for a few years now, but boy, when he was on air, he was popular because he showed how terrible people's lives were, and people were, enjoyed that because they could laugh at others, they could judge others, and they can say, uh, thank you, God, that I'm not like those people. Thank you that my life isn't as horrible as theirs. But Christians are called to love. Christians are called to care. Christians are called to compassion. We mourn the fact that God is dishonored by sin, and we desire not just a change of behavior, but what's deeper than the behavior? It's the heart. What motivates you to obedience? You can do all sorts of things on the outside. You can fool people on the outside, but you can't fool God who sees the heart. Years ago, one of the prison facilities where I worked, there was a large portion of sex offenders, and there was a program that was designed to help them overcome their the cause for their offense. And one of the psychologists was very adamant that the Christian men who were in the program not bring their Christianity to the program. Keep religion out of it. We're not here to discuss religion. And I said to her one day, I said, you can't do that. It's like taking you know, the fish out of water. These men who are in Christ, this is their identity. This is who they are. They cannot function or breathe outside of Christ. So to try to get them to divorce their uh, therapy from Christ doesn't make sense. They're not going to find lasting success. And part of it was they didn't like religion. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't want to hear people talking about Christ because it was offensive. I don't know if she ever understood what I was saying. But I said, this is who they are. They cannot function outside of this understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for them. So we're looking for a change of heart, not just outward changes. You know, people, can, again, they can fool you on the outside. Parole boards. How many parole boards have had the, the, the wool pulled, covered of, pulled over their eyes because they thought someone changed when they really didn't? So they get released, and then they reoffend, and then they go back to prison. We're looking for a change of heart. We're looking for a change that's not going to have them come back into the institution. We're looking to see lawbreakers become law lovers. So um, David in Psalm 51, he talks about who he has offended when he confesses his sin. He says, against you, you alone have I sinned. He has offended Uriah. He has sinned against Bathsheba. But even before them, he has sinned against his creator and his savior. He has sinned against the one true holy God. So when we sin, we need to consider that reality And that truth. It's not just somebody who has been hurt or who we've been hurt by. Because sin doesn't just affect us, it affects others, right? We can lead others down the wrong path if we follow the wrong path ourselves. But sin shows rebellion and contempt against God, who he is in all his holiness and in his goodness. And outside of Christ, you cannot have the finality and the reality for which you were created. Outside of Christ, you will never achieve your true purpose. We are made for a purpose to worship and to honor and to love and to serve the holy, true, and the living God. 
You know, we live in a world that's searching for identity. You know, I mentioned the gender stuff a little bit ago. Everyone's trying to find a purpose, trying to find a meaning, trying to find a place to fit in. Because that's part of being made in the image of God. Every human being has that greater desire for purpose and for identity. Whether or not they understand it rightly, it's in all of us. We find that purpose, identity, fulfillment in Christ. And of course, we don't want to end on a sad note thinking about the mourn, the sin that we've committed against God, the sin uh, that we mourn uh, in the world around us. It says uh, in Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We don't mourn just for the sake of mourning. There's a passage in James I think some people might take the wrong way. Count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Like I go around looking for problems and just say, count it all joy. God brings me trouble, it must be a good thing. If I get in trouble, it must be a good thing. And that's dangerous. Especially if you're a kid who likes to sneak around or tell little lies. Well, the more I do it, the more I sin, the more God is going to bless me. Paul speaks about that in the book of Romans. That's not what we're called to do. We don't mourn just for the sake of mourning. We're not to be depressed by nature like Eeyore or the Marsh Wiggles. The end of mourning is comfort. Now, I mentioned the term already uh, recently, the already and the not yet. The blessings that we enjoy in the present and the blessings that are yet to come. That's true for the Christian. There are certain blessings that we enjoy now in Christ, but we only have a taste, a picture, a small slice of what the glory is that is to come for the believer. The already blessings are what we have experienced because God's promise in Christ's coming has been fulfilled. We live in the light of the reality of Christ. We live in the light of the fact that he came to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill the promise of God that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, and that's exactly what Jesus did at the cross. But there is more to come, the not yet blessings. We haven't had them yet. There is a glory that we have not yet experienced. There is a comfort that we are waiting for. When we will be in the presence of God in such a way that we can only now barely imagine. Imagine the peace, the holiness, the righteousness, the goodness, the gladness, the delight, the joy that will come. Utter and total joy, complete and perfect paradise. This isn't the end, brothers and sisters. This is the beginning. We're starting the road. This is the dash. And have you ever heard of the dash on the tombstone? There's the year you were born, the year you died. There's the dash. The dash is your life. We're all in that dash right now. What are you doing with that part of your life? Are you getting ready for glory? Are you getting ready for the eternity that is to come? Now, we mourn in the present. We mourn in a fallen and in a perverse world. But one day our mourning is taken away and we will be fully and completely comforted. The comfort is going to come. Now, it's again, just what's a picture of, of, of modern comfort? You know, my uh, middle, she reminded me last night, she's got a little stuffed bear with a little bunny hoodie she's had since she was, I think, since she was a newborn. She's had that thing her whole life. And well, I don't want to embarrass her by saying too much about how she's responded to that thing in her later teenage years. 
But I will say when she was younger, if she lost that bear, she was a wreck. She had to have it with her at all times. She would hold on to it. She would keep it close. She would suck on it, give her comfort. If she lost it, it was the end of the world. But when we found it, if it was lost, oh, it brought a wave of relief to her. That's a small picture, a small foretaste of the glory that is to come. We struggle, we suffer, we mourn, we fight, we fall, we get back up. But when the glory of heaven comes, when the comfort, when that release, that refreshment, that freedom comes, it's going to be a joy that we've never experienced. I like uh, Sam Gamgee, Samwise and the Return of the King. I think it's his question to Gandalf. I can't remember if it's a question or a statement. I think it's a question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I love that turn of phrase. Everything sad is going to come untrue. We have hope, even if we can't see that for which we hope. And I don't want to get into all the details of what heaven's going to look like, what glory's going to be like. Uh, uh, my professor, he wrote at one point, he says, it's a beautiful thing to think about heaven as the place where there will be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears. But, he says, heaven is in that great retirement condo complex in the sky with perfect weather and unlimited golf. For me, golf would be hell because I can't stand golf. Some people love it. They think heaven is just going to be endless golf. It's not that at all. That trivializes what it is to be in the presence of God. He says, heaven is not enjoying for eternity our little earthly pleasures without the earthly frustrations. That's not heaven. Heaven is going to make the most beautiful and blessed earthly joy pale in comparison. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Until then, we mourn. We even follow the example of Christ. It says he was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And just like Christ was in mourning for a time that has since ended, we too mourn for a time, but one day our time of mourning will end and we will be comforted. God will come and redemption. And a couple of verses to finish with. Isaiah 35, verse 10, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Not just disappear, they will flee away. There will be no sorrow or sighing in the presence of God and glory. Zephaniah 3.17 talks about God's delight in us. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God will rejoice over you with gladness. Think about that. That doesn't fit our depraved Calvinistic sensibilities, but there it is in Scripture. God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is how much God loves you. This is the God who is not against you, but the God who is for you because he chose you and made you his own through Christ, through his son who suffered for you. So we mourn, yes, but we mourn with hopefulness. Mourning is for a season. It's not forever. And I'll close with a paraphrase from Paul in Romans chapter 7, he talks about the reality of sin in life. He says, Who will deliver us from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God for Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for your love and for your goodness to us. We thank you for the salvation that we have in your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, for the morning that is going to end. The sadness that will give way to comfort. So, Lord, while we live in the present life, while we deal and cope with some of the strains and stresses and struggles of our currently earthly existence, we know that there is a day when you will bring your glory to bear. You will return to judge the living and the dead. And in Christ we find we have new life now, but we will find new life even at your return. So encourage us with the knowledge of that truth. Encourage us with the knowledge of being in your presence, finding our fulfillment, finding our rest, our comfort, our relief for all of eternity. Bless us in the knowledge of that now and encourage us as we continue in our worship. For Jesus' sake, amen.